Philippians 1, verses 12 through 30. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not at all, not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray together. Father, we believe in the power of your word. Lord, we believe in the truth of your word. We believe in its ability to call light out of darkness and to call life even from death. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to your word and ask that you would teach us. Lord, I am reminded that any power that is able to transform our hearts, our lives, our futures comes from you, Lord. And so Lord, we pray that you would speak today. We pray that you would lead, that you would teach us and that by your spirit, you would enable us to receive it, rejoice in it and go from this place doing it. So we love you. Thank you for today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in high school, I would have said that I lived for water polo. Any water polo players out there? There got to be some. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, right on. I lived for water polo. 
It was the only reason I went to class. I had to keep a 2.0 GPA just to remain eligible. And so water polo was the reason I did my homework. The homework that I did. Water polo was the reason I went to class. Water polo was the reason I did anything. It basically was the source of my identity and my high school experience. It, it, it governed my relationships, how I spent my time, how I spent my, my weekends and my summers. It was, it was all consuming. The interesting thing, something that for years I struggled with is as much as I loved water polo, why didn't I go on and play after high school? I didn't even try to play after high school and play in college. For a long time, it confused me. And it confused people in my life. And it was only after reflecting on it, giving it some serious thought, that I realized I didn't live for water polo. I lived for what water polo created for me. I lived for what it got me. See, water polo was the first thing that I had done that I felt um, somewhat accomplished in and celebrated for. And I craved that. See, water polo created for me an identity, an image that I wanted to create. And I realized that after graduating high school, I didn't think I could make a team in college. So I never tried because that wouldn't be good for my image. It was better to step out of it and not try for it than to try and fail. See, today, I would like to think that I live for Jesus. I would like to think that my life revolves around Jesus. I can point to all kinds of decisions I've made and the way that I spend my time to say, look, my life revolves around Jesus. But there is always this potential, this thorn in the flesh, this fear, this concern that Jesus is just my new water polo. That ministry is just a new way to garner uh, an identity or to, to garner support or, or praise from others. It's very easy to do to make ministry an idol. I would like to think that, that Jesus is what I live for. But there's always a concern that ministry is just a new water polo. What do you live for? What does your life revolve around? What are you living for? If you're a believer, then you probably know the right answer, right? You know the Sunday school answer. What are you living for? I live for Jesus. You know the right answer, but there are many things in this world that compete for our affections. They compete for our, our source of joy. They compete to be the things that our lives revolve around. Many of those things are good things. Sometimes we can even be deceived to believe that we are living for Jesus. All the while, we're living for ourselves. There's the possibility that deep down, we merely Christianize the thing that we truly desire because we don't see it as incompatible with the faith. And so we find ourselves using Jesus to attain what we really want. And often we don't truly understand what we are living for until that thing that we desire 
is threatened or taken away. See, adversity exposes our true affections. But what our text says today and what we need to receive today is that Jesus, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, the the, the joy of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel, the promise of the gospel, eternal life is the one thing, Christ is the one thing that we can live for that will never be taken away. Jesus is the only thing that you can live for that you cannot lose. See, let's remember where Paul is when he's writing this, okay? He is in a Roman prison. He was arrested by the religious leaders in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel. He was handed over to the Roman leaders in hopes that they would execute him for uh, being an enemy of Caesar. They couldn't find anything worthy of death. And at one point in his trial, Paul appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And so they send him to Rome where he is in prison awaiting a trial before Caesar. So that Caesar, who is Nero at this time, can decide Paul's fate. And so according to our passage, Paul is in prison and he does not know how this is going to turn out. Paul doesn't know if he is going to live or die. And his primary concern in the letter, despite his suffering despite his experience. See, in, in Roman prisons, uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't give prisoners food or water or clothing or provisions. They didn't use taxes to care for the welfare of prisoners. A prisoner was completely dependent upon his friends and family to provide what he needed. And so Paul is completely dependent on those who know him and love him. And so the Philippians send someone, Epaphroditus, with a gift to encourage Paul and to care for his needs. And so Paul has an opportunity to write them a letter and tell them how he's doing. This is Paul's one shot, right? Put yourself in that position. What do you tell your friends about how you're doing? I want you to know, friends, how miserable this place is, how hungry I am, how cold and damp, how the guards smell funny. I want you to know how desperately I want you to get me out of here. That's what I'd be saying. And Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That's Paul's concern. That's Paul's utmost concern is that they would know, hey, I want you to know what has happened because of this. But the good news is going everywhere. He says there's two ways this is happening. First, he says that because of his situation, the whole imperial guard has learned about the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, uh, another aspect of being in prison in Rome would be that uh, Paul was chained to a guard, not just in a cell, chained to a Roman guard who would work on shifts. Every so often, new guard comes in. And we know from Acts 16 how Paul lived during his imprisonments, right? Remember that scene where he and Silas are worshiping in prison? So Paul's in prison. He's got a new guard chained to him. Paul sees his captivity as just providing him one after another, a new captive audience. They They can't get away. Hey, buddy, how those chains feeling? You good? 
Let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> and pretty soon, everyone in the Imperial Guard knows about this man that Paul claims has risen from the dead. The gospel is going into the, the, the deepest circles of, of Roman authority. At the end of this letter, Paul will even send greetings to the Philippian church from members of Caesar's own household. If you know anything about Nero and how insane and violent he was, recognize that there are members of his own household who are not only believing in Jesus, but tending to Paul's needs and say, hey, say hi for me too. Maybe they knew the jailer in Philippi who was saved the night that Paul and Silas were worshiping. But the gospel, because of Paul's imprisonment, is going everywhere. And Paul wants the Philippians to know. Along with Paul's own ministry, Paul says that many of the other people in in Philippi, many of the other believers in Philippi are, are being empowered in their faith to go and do likewise and to proclaim the gospel in Rome. Not all of them are doing them from the, doing it from the same motive. Some are preaching from love, Paul says, seeing Paul as this heroic example of what it looks like to suffer for Christ's sake. He's risking it all for Jesus. And so they're motivated to do the same. That's a hard concept for us to get oftentimes. Like this guy, Paul, believes the same thing that I believe. He went and told people what he believed. And now he's in prison and might die. Hey guys, let's go do the same. That's not an easy concept for us to to understand. But there are other situations in life that parallel. I would put before you William Wallace. Braveheart, okay? William Wallace did not live to see Scottish independence. He died a brutal death. And his followers responded by going and winning the victory over their oppressors. They saw his sacrifice. They saw his character. They saw his resolve. They saw him fight for something that he believed in. And they said, we can do it too. See, when you believe that Christ truly offers freedom and apart from Christ, we're dead in our sins and you see that someone who can suffer for that message is still rejoicing, there's hope for you too. There's hope for you also to bring the good news to people who might reject you, who might scorn you, who might uh, disregard you, who might cut off ties with you, who might be violent with you. I don't know. You can do, or rather you will do, the work of setting people free if you truly believe that freedom is available and nothing but Jesus Christ. And so many are being empowered in their faith to go and share the gospel, but we're told many are motivated by something different. Others apparently were using ministry during Paul's imprisonment to rub salt in his wounds. They're doing it from rivalry, from jealousy, it says. Now, Paul is, is not unfamiliar with combating heresy in his letters. He, he's, it's a common theme for him to be addressing his opponents in his various letters. Consider 
uh, the Judaizers in Galatia who are demanding legal obedience to the Jewish law in order to be saved. Think of the Gnostics in, in Corinth and in, in Colossae who are teaching that Christ is not sufficient in and of himself, but we need this greater secret knowledge in order to truly be saved. Paul's letters are full of combating these heresies. But what is uncommon is for Paul to say that despite the motives of these teachers, he rejoices in their ministries. That doesn't happen anywhere else. Consider what he says about the Judaizers in Galatia demanding Gentile circumcision in order to be saved. Paul uh, uh, says that perhaps castration would be a due penalty for their heresy. That's brutal, right? We can just acknowledge like the, the Bible is gnarly. Paul addresses heresy up front. He shuts it down. He, he turns it away. He does not rejoice in it. So what's the difference between that and these preachers? See, Paul's concern with these preachers is not their doctrine, but their motives. He's not concerned that they're leading people away with false teaching. He's concerned that their teaching, though it is about Jesus, is coming from false motives. And so they're not heretics leading people astray. They may be envious and self-promoting. They may see Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity for them to push their own agendas and establish their own ministry in the community. But they are in fact preaching Christ. They're making the good news of Jesus known. And for that, Paul says he rejoices. Now, when you consider what Paul is going through and you consider the words that he's saying, the first thing that I think of is, man, Paul's really good at finding the silver lining, right? That's my own defense mechanism when I suffer. My own defense mechanism is, is I need to find something that I can cling to so that I can tell myself it's worth it. Rather than sitting in the difficulty and truly being honest about how, how, how difficult and painful the situation is, my thing is, is initially to grab onto something and go, well, at least now this happened. That's how I make myself feel better. And so I read this and I go, man, Paul, you're a genius. So good at finding the silver lining. But Paul's not looking for a silver lining here. He's saying that all of these things what has happened to him, his imprisonment, his suffering, is actually accomplishing the very thing that he lives for. It's, it's actually doing more effectively than what he could do apart from it. He's rejoicing, not in the suffering, but he's rejoicing despite the suffering. Because what he truly wants is not pleasure, is not leisure. What he truly wants is to know Christ and to make Christ known. It's his life's goal. The key to this whole passage is verse 21. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To say that for you to live is Christ is just another way to say that Christ is what you live for. That, that Christ is your aim, your goal, your greatest desire. He says it in another way in Acts chapter 20. 
as he's preparing to go to Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be arrested, he knows he's going to suffer affliction. He says this in Acts 20, 22 through 24. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His greatest goal in life, what he hopes for, is to know Jesus and to make him known. And I think the whole reason that he's, he's saying all of this to the Philippians, the reason he wants the Philippians to see that, that the gospel is taking root, not only despite his imprisonment, but through his imprisonment, is because he wants Jesus to be who they live for also. And he wants us to live for Christ as well. That's what Paul says in the last section, is living a manner of life worthy of the gospel. A life that is worthy of Jesus is one that lives for Jesus. Now, we do need to be careful when we talk about that because living in a manner worthy of the gospel is not the reason for our salvation. It is the response to our salvation. Okay, Jesus isn't waiting for us to get our lives together so that we're finally worthy of him. He has given himself to us despite our unworthiness. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the scriptures teach. So we don't make our lives worthy so that Jesus will love us. He loves us. He died for us. He has invited you into eternal glory. And for that reason, we live in a manner worthy of that. It's like in a marriage. To live in a manner worthy of your spouse's love is to be faithful. It's our response to what Jesus has done, that we live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so as Paul said in Acts, we are not to account our lives of any value or as precious to ourselves. That is not easy. It's not easy. It's especially difficult when we have so many other things in culture, so many other competing voices saying that we don't need to die to self. There's so many teachers inside the church and outside of the church who teach that we don't have to die for, to ourselves, that we can live our best life now, that all you need to have is the right mindset and you can have whatever you've dreamed of. This idea is not new to our culture. See, in the first century, suffering was understood in the pagan religions to be a sign of the God's displeasure. If you did all the right things in your religious service and you kept the gods happy, the gods would let you have, you know, health, wealth, and happiness. But the minute you started to displease the gods, they would come after you. There's even a sense of this in some aspects of the Jewish religion. Consider Job, um, his friends, who said, Job, it's because you're a sinner. 
that this suffering is coming to you. It's because you've done something wrong. It's because you're not making God happy with the way that you're living, that suffering is coming. Now we know that Job's friends were wrong. That was not what was happening there. But there is this idea, even in the Christian world, that, you know, if you just had enough faith, or if you were just a little more obedient, or if you read your Bible more, or you prayed more, then you would not be experiencing the pain that you are experiencing. It's not true. That's not true. A leading opinion um, among scholars today regarding the preacher of the, the preaching of those falsely motivated preachers in Rome is that they were actually teaching that Paul's present predicament was a sign of God's disapproval of him as an apostle. They believed that if we truly follow Jesus, then we will, ex- we will receive health, wealth, and happiness. And since Paul's in prison, this must be God's rejection of his ministry and his teaching and an affirmation of our own. And would use that to promote themselves over Paul. Oh, Paul. You mean that guy in prison? Yeah, God's not happy with him. But I tell you this. So many people believe that this is what his opponents in Rome were doing. And isn't that what our opponent, the devil, does to us? You don't really need to do that. You don't really need to die to self. What's... What's this God all about demanding that you die to self? God, no, God wants you to be happy. It's like what the serpent said to Eve in the garden. No, God's holding out on you. You don't have to do this. You don't need to sacrifice. You don't need to suffer. Your life is too precious. Your time too valuable. And we can believe the lie that we're not ready to take hold of the life that God wants for us. That we're not ready to take hold of of the ministry that God has for us. That we're not qualified to tell tell people about Jesus. That we're we're not able to be stewards of this good news because we don't either have the time or we don't have the holiness. We look at ourselves and we go, you're right, devil. I can't say these words because these people know that I'm a sinner. Or you're right, devil. I can't spend my time in this way because my time is too precious. Or yes, you're right. I shouldn't serve in that capacity because I, people might look at me like I'm a leader in the church and, and I can't, I can't have a, a public role. Yes, you're right. My, my time is too valuable. All of these things that I live for are too precious right now. I am going to wait until I'm ready for this. And then I'll do it. The devil comes alongside and says, no, what you need it's just more self-care. I'm not, a, I'm not a hater of self-care. If you need rest, rest. But pampering yourself and living in comfort does not prepare you for spiritual battle. Okay, it does not prepare you for the war against powers and principalities in the evil realms, in the heavenly places. It does not prepare you for the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, if you're tired, if you're wounded, if you're broken 
and exhausted rest. But rest so that with your brothers and sisters, you can go to war. If we continue to wait until we're at a point where we feel ready to live for Jesus, it's not going to come. It will never happen. But here's the truth. The moment you begin living for Jesus, whether that means putting your faith in him for the first time or, or, or trusting him, taking a step of faith and involving yourself into a good work of the gospel for the first time, the moment you do, you find a wealth of readiness has already been supplied. We want to wait until we feel like it. What we're invited into is to take a step of faith and step into it and find power and energy for it. It's like exercise. No one who is living a life of of zero exercise ever just randomly wakes up in the morning and goes, you know what I feel like? I feel like running Franklin Trail. No, it's never happened. The the, the first time you exercise is always the hardest time. You never feel like it. But after you make yourself do it, after you take those first few steps on the hike or after you, you know, whatever it is you're going to do for exercise, as soon as you start committing to that and building a routine for that, you start looking forward to it. And you know what? You find that you actually have more energy throughout the day. You tell yourself, I'm already so tired. Exercising is going to make it worse. I get it, but no, it's not. You actually have energy when you do it. You need to start in order for it to be supplied. We need to take a step of faith in order to find that Jesus is there the whole time. If we're waiting for readiness, it's not going to come. But the moment you step into it, the Lord supplies. Whether it's with physical disciplines or spiritual disciplines, If you're waiting until you feel like reading the Bible or until you feel like praying or until you feel like serving or being generous with your resources, whatever it is, if you wait until you feel like it, it's never going to happen. But you know what? There has never been a time in all of my Christian walk. And I would venture to say there has never been a time in all of your Christian walk where you've ever closed the Bible and you've been like, shouldn't have done that. Never. It hasn't happened. And yet we still approach it as though like, is this a waste of time? Like I got so much to do. It's never happened. The same is true for anything that God is calling you into in your walk of faith. You're not going to feel like it. It might be hard. But the Lord will supply what you need. The moment we step into it, we'll find a wealth of joy and power. So what are you going to live for? From this point on, whatever we were living for before we came into this place, what are we going to live for when we leave this place? Because we all live for something. But we were meant to live for one thing. Jesus is the one thing that we can live for that will never disappoint. Jesus is the one thing that we can live for that will never be taken away. Whatever you live for in life, at the very least, death is the promise that it will be taken from you. 
You brought nothing into this world. You can take nothing out of it, but Jesus can never be taken away because Jesus is the one who has power over death. So the greatest weapon that the enemy has over us is suffering and the threat of death. The greatest weapon that the enemy has to keep us stagnant in our lives or to keep us stagnant in our faith is it's going to be too hard. You can't do it. You might suffer for it. They might reject you. Or did you know that some people across the world die just for saying that they believe this? The greatest weapon that he has against us is suffering and the threat of death. But Jesus subjected himself to the full weight of the suffering and death that he, that he experienced on the cross. He allowed the enemy to throw everything he possibly had at him, subjected himself to all the pain, to all the torture, to breathing his last, so that three days later, he could mock the enemy's weapons. When he rose from the dead, Jesus subjected himself to the worst that the enemy has so that he could prove to you that in Christ, the enemy has no power over you. Zero, none, because Jesus Christ has the keys to death and hell. The only thing that you can live for that has a guaranteed future is Jesus. And the promise of the gospel is that the spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead lives in those who believe and anyone who trusts in Jesus will experience a resurrection from the dead. Our triumph over adversity, our triumph over over suffering, our triumph over even death, it does not come by avoiding it. The enemy wants you to believe that it comes by circumnavigating the difficulties. But our triumph does not come by avoiding it, but by the grace of God, it comes by walking through it. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Likewise, we endure whatever comes our way in this life. We don't have to celebrate it. We can despise it. We cannot like it. But for the joy that is set before us, we endure and we receive the life that is available to us at the end. This is why Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Jesus is all you want, then death is no longer an end. Death is no longer a loss. When Jesus is all that you want, death is only the thing that brings you face to face with what you've been desiring your whole life. It's just a tunnel. It's a conduit that brings you into the arms of your savior. This is why Paul rejoices despite not knowing his future. He goes, I may live, I may die. If I'm acquitted, I'll be delivered from prison. If I'm condemned, I'll be executed and delivered into the arms of Jesus. He goes, what shall I choose? I don't know. 
I desire to depart and be with Jesus, for that is far better. Reality Carpentry, do you believe that? Do you believe that it is far better to be with Christ? This kind of faith and assurance that Paul has, it doesn't just happen. Okay, it doesn't just, it doesn't just occur overnight. It's not this, this switch that we can flip and just suddenly be walking in the boldness and courage of microphones falling down. It's not something that just happens instantaneously. But we can make choices, choices today that set us on a course that will break the power that this world has over us, break the fear that keeps us from living from our God-given purpose, and even break the fear of death itself. There are choices that you can make today that set you on this trajectory. And for some, it's the choice to trust in Jesus for the first time. You know what? I can't promise you that if you come to Jesus, everything, all of life will be all good. I can't. I can promise you that he will be good. That's a promise that I can make, but I don't know what you're going to encounter for Jesus. I don't know what life God is going to call you into. But I can tell you this, as long as you stand on the outskirts waiting for for some readiness to accept the gospel that you believe is true, as long as you keep waiting for that, it's not going to happen. And so for some of us, putting our faith in Jesus for the first time will set us on that course of being able to rejoice in Christ like Paul does. For others, it's to trust that Jesus is better than the thing that we're clinging to. You've already put your trust in Jesus. You know him as savior. You know your eternal destination. You know what he's done for you. But there's something That's keeping you from experiencing a fullness of joy with him. I don't know what it is. But I'm willing to bet that you do. I'm willing to bet that by the stirring of the Holy Spirit, whether it's in this place or before you got here, I'm willing to bet that there is something in your life that occasionally or maybe constantly he continues to put his finger on and says, this, I don't have this for you. I know the temptation. I know the joy that it brings, but I want you to know how much more joy I have for you outside of this. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something that you've just come to depend on every day of your life, day in and day out, instead of resting in the the goodness and the grace and the love of Jesus. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something that you need to confess. Maybe it's someone you need to forgive. Maybe it's some bitterness that you've allowed to, to, to hold on to your heart. Maybe it's, it's some act of, of, of service or, or heck, maybe it's, it's joining a home group or, or getting connected to a, a ministry team within the church somewhere. Maybe it's sharing your faith with friends or family. Maybe it's, it's, it's taking that step of faith, risking your reputation and being known as a Christian at the workplace. When someone asks you, what'd you do this weekend? And you finally, for the first time say, on Sunday, I went to church. I don't know what it is. What that thing is that, that, that Christ is, is calling you to, to, to let go of, to, to trust that, that he is better. I don't know what it is, but I'm willing to bet that you do. 
And so we have an opportunity today to not just make that commitment or or make that sacrifice. See, what God's calling you to is more than to make a sacrifice of, of, of time or reputation or, or finances or relationships or whatever it is. It's, it's more than that. What Jesus is asking you to do is to give up your right to live for yourself. To let go of the right that you have to, to let your life revolve around just you and your desires. It's an invitation to do what Jesus says, to pick up your cross daily and follow him daily. Not just one time in the past when you put your faith in him, but daily. What does it look like to die to myself so that I can live for Jesus? To pick up your cross and follow him. And not only are we guaranteed life and eternity, not only are we told that that despite our affliction, despite our suffering, we can experience joy. But in the example of Paul's life, we have an assurance that dying to self and living for Christ shows the world how good Jesus is. When we encounter whatever life brings, we like Paul, as we keep praising our Savior, we'll see people in our lives wanting to know that joy, that confidence, that assurance that they have not found in anything else in this world because nothing in this world can provide that assurance. I want to close with a quote from Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband, Jim Elliot, was killed in the mission field for his faith. She said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Church, you are no fool to give your life which you cannot keep in order to receive the life that Christ gives, which you can never lose in this life or the next. And so, Father, this is what I pray for us today. Holy Spirit, break the chains that keep us tied to worldly pleasures and prevent us from living for your glory. Lord Jesus, right now in this time, break the addictions, Lord, that prevent us from from being able to escape the the trials and the the temptations that come from it, Lord, that keep us from, from tasting and seeing that you are good. Lord, right now, I pray that you would just shut the lies of the enemy up that tells us that we're not ready or tells us that, that we're not good enough or tells us that we're different, that this doesn't apply to us, that the moment we give God an inch, he's gonna take a mile, that the moment we trust in him, he's, he's gonna come barreling down on us with all kinds of, of discouragement. That's a lie. God, I pray that right now by your spirit, you would give us the courage not only to believe that this is true, but to live in light of its truth, to live, as Paul says, in a manner worthy of the gospel. That we would pick up our cross and follow you. And Lord, I pray that right now as we make those decisions, that we would find supplied abundantly, infinitely, immeasurably, 
the readiness, the power, the joy, the energy to not only step into that thing, but to faithfully pursue and endure the life that you lead us into for your glory. God, I pray that all of us at some point in our lives, Lord, I pray that today you would put us all on a trajectory so that some point in our lives, we can say with full confidence, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, give us that testimony for your glory and the good of your kingdom in this world. Holy Spirit, do it in us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.